I'm joined this morning by Dwight Merriam, who is the president of the Rivers Alliance of Connecticut. We'll talk about the water quality in Connecticut and go off in some other directions as well. Dwight, good morning. Thanks for coming in today. And for starters, what is the Rivers Alliance of Connecticut? Well, um, thank you for inviting me here this morning. It's always nice to be in the presence of an icon, an icon in radio broadcasting. When I grow up, I hope to be an icon myself, but it is great to be here. And Rivers Alliance is a wonderful organization. It is kind of a coalition of people concerned about the environment. There are many great environmental organizations in the state of Connecticut. We're blessed with a state that is really focused on the environment. And our focus is on, just like it says, the rivers. The rivers as a place of recreation, of, as a place of ecology to maintain our fisheries, uh, as part of our economic base. Uh, we're concerned about use of the water in the rivers and use of the water coming out of the rivers. How do you rate the quality of the water in Connecticut? Not necessarily Long Island Sound, but I mean the waters that go to Long Island Sound here in 2020. Connecticut has maybe the highest quality water in the country. I mean, it's astounding how great our water resource is, which is really causing us not to focus as we should on conservation. So. We have, in most of our 44 basins, sub-watersheds and watersheds, enough high-quality water. It's both quantity and quality. But um, that water supply is threatened in many ways. Only about 20% of the water that we take out, we actually use for consumption. The other 80% gets used on other things, including watering our lawns and flushing our toilets and washing our clothes and our dishes. So we need to be cognizant of that. We are fortunate to have our Class A waters, our very best directly drinkable waters, as the sole source of our potable water supply. But we need to think about conservation, and our new state water plan even recognizes that we're not doing all we can on that front. Tell me about that state water plan. What are some of the key points? Well, you know, planning... I happen to be a planner as well as a lawyer, uh, and uh, we like to say that planning involves three things. What do you have, what do you want, and how do you get it? It's as simple as that. Let me guess, part three involves money. Uh, well, not, not always. Um, some of it just involves public will and, and private initiative. But what do we have? We have 44 sub-watersheds and basins throughout the state. Uh, most of them have sufficient high-quality water supplies. Uh, what do we want? You know, we, we as planners, you and I and everyone else, is a planner for future generations. We have to give voice to our grandchildren and great-grandchildren, all those who will follow us. And so part of our job is to think about what we need for 100 years or 200 years to come. Um, and, you know, how do we get it? We get it in a couple of several different ways. First of all, we, we do need to conserve. We do need to protect our water supplies. We're very concerned, both Rivers Alliance and everybody else uh, in the environmental area, about the PFAS, the foam, firefighting foam that you've probably seen in the news. I see you nodding. You know about it. There's actually been two of those occasions. Right? Well, there's been multiple of those occasions. This is one that's not widely known. I happen to live in Simsbury, and the next town over is Canton. 
the Canton volunteer firefighters did what they should be doing. They were training in the use of this foam firefighting. This PFAS is a firefighting foam that's used to smother oil fires. As you may have seen looking at my background, I had a 31-year career in the Navy as a warfare officer, and I trained using firefighting foam 50 years ago um, in Newport at OCS. And uh, that same foam is what we use today. It was used in that crash at Bradley Field of that World War II airplane. And that was one of the other spills that got into the river. So, so here's what happened in Canton. And this is where we are at risk all across the board. The Canton firefighters doing a good thing, exercising their firefighting skills, uh, proportioned some foam with PFAS, and uh, did it out in the field uh, near an elementary school, which was a big open field. And guess what? The PFAS went down through the ground, got into the elementary school's water supply, and they're trying to sort that out now. So our, our number one thing that we have to do is protect our Class A water supplies. That means being very careful about what goes on in the ground above it, being very careful about what goes on in the watersheds around it. And then the second part of that is we have to conserve what we're doing. And we need to think about using our Class B water supplies, of which we have plenty as well, that are not potable and not ready for direct drinking, and use that for non-consumptive purposes like irrigation and the like. So there's a lot that we can do, and we owe that to the people that come after us. Give me an example of what a Class A and a Class B is. For example, 100 yards from us here, we have the Willimantic River. Is Willimantic River a Class A or I Class B? I don't know. I don't have to go back and look at my maps to be able to tell you. But what would be some examples of A or B? Well, A, a would be any of the preserved reservoirs with the land around it protected from development. So those Mansfield, reservoirs, Mansfield Hollow would be one. Sure, and and yeah, absolutely. And those and those reservoirs, you see them occasionally where you can only use electric outboards uh, or no outboards at all, and uh, the land around it. There's been long controversies over the last several decades about the disposition of those lands around the reservoirs, and we at Rivers Alliance uh, really would like to see as much of that land preserved around our surface water supplies. But it's also the subsurface water supplies that are Class A, the aquifers that are under the ground that we need to protect by regulating the land use that comes above. And the state water plan looks at that as well. What would you call the Connecticut River or the Farmington River or the Housatonic River? Well, it depends on whether you're talking about the river itself or the tributaries and, and as well. Now, you can go to any of the websites of the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, Public Health, and look up the classification of the rivers and surface water supplies around where you live. Let me back up a little bit to, you talked about the pollution in those rivers, including the one from the World War II aircraft. I just saw a story in the news just a couple of days ago. That, that cleanup is still going on. What do you see as the current status of that, and will they eventually get it cleaned up? Well, the problem with PFAS, PFAS we just did not understand. Certainly when I was playing with it 50 years ago in officer candidate school, uh, it was, it was, the foam was everywhere. It was, it was interesting, and, uh, and we, just, we just didn't know. It's a carcinogen. It's a cause of obesity. It's a cause of all kinds of serious problems, and it's pervasive and it's long-lasting. So, and the amounts that cause problems are minuscule, and we don't always test for it. 
when we test water supplies, we're not always testing for these esoteric uh, chemicals in very small amounts. And so that's why it's really critical. To answer your question, it could be a very long time, very long time before it's cleaned up. At the same time, the military is working. Most people don't know about it, but they are working on a substitute for PFAS that presumably will be safe or safer, uh, but it's expensive, and we do need it for firefighting in some circumstances. We just have to think about where we're using it, how we're using it, how we keep it from migrating from where it is used into our water supplies. Dwight, you saw my reaction earlier on when you talked about Connecticut likely having the cleanest water supplies and water bodies in the state. That's pretty impressive. Now, why is that? Is that a geographical situation where because of the way the waters come off the springs and so forth of the mountains, or is it because we are proactive and take good care of our water supplies? Well, I think it's a combination of both of them. We've done a pretty good job historically of protecting our surface water supplies by protecting the land around it. Um, the controversy over ONG, for example, in New Britain expanding their their mining operation, quarrying operation there is a good example where there is conflict between economic development and the use of surface uh, lands around uh, watersheds and the need to protect that water supply. So, so part of it is that we have been good about it. And we've even restricted things like we don't do fracking in this state, which is hydraulic fracturing for gas and oil, but we prohibit fracking waste from coming into the state, which would damage our water supply. So we're, we're out ahead of a problem that fortunately we don't have. So we're good about that. And the second part is, you know, we are, um, now we have small net migration. We're a slow growth, no growth state. We still have households being formed because our households are being smaller. So we have more households, but fewer people. So there isn't as much pressure on our water. Uh, I'm doing a program in Bozeman, Montana. We may be doing one in Texas soon. And those parts of the country are really pressed for water. And uh, we have a new national program called Net Blue, which is a water offset program. And uh, I'll be happy to tell you a little bit about that too, because I think, if anything, one of the things the state water plan says quite clearly, uh, I won't bother to dig through my pile of papers here to read it, but because I can, I can paraphrase it accurately, is that we're not doing a good enough job on water conservation. We aren't. And the last thing we want to get rid of is what Trump wants to get rid of, our low-flow devices. And we'll discuss that later on. <laughs> and, and speaking of uh, the, the water situation elsewhere, I'm pretty knowledgeable about Santa Barbara. They have a water moratorium there, and they won't let you build because they don't have enough water to get to additional housing. So. That's exactly. In fact, I was just writing about that three days ago, about the, the moratoria around the country. And uh, it is a real problem. But one of the things that's been done, which is very important for us to understand here in Connecticut, is the Alliance for Water Efficiency, based in Chicago, along with the Environmental Law Institute in Washington, D.C., and River Network, a national organization dealing with rivers, got together and developed a program called NetBlue. Our, your listeners can find it by just going to AWE NetBlue, Alliance for Water Efficiency, NetBlue. And what it says is as simple as this, Wayne. You're a developer, you want to build something, go to it. We want the development. 
but we want you to show us how you're going to save as much water as you're going to use. We don't want you to build a new water supply. We want you to figure out how to conserve the water equal to what you're going to build. And that's what we're doing in Bozeman. Tomorrow's the anniversary of the day the Hartford Civic Center roof collapsed. I happened to mention that to Dwight this morning. And, well, Dwight, what's your story about that? Well, the morning after, I was a third-year law student and um, working with a law firm and was in Hartford the next morning uh, in a building overlooking the collapsed roof. And then the firm I spent 40 years with before I retired and started a solo practice uh, then represented the city of Hartford in recovering uh, from the insurance companies and others uh, the cost of rebuilding uh, the roof. And uh, it was just basically, a, as I recall it, a design error in the so-called space frame that was jacked into place. So got a long history. And we were just, as we were commenting offline here, just very lucky that no one happened to be in there at the time. Yeah, just six hours earlier, was the UConn men's basketball game with UMass. The Huskies won that game and could have come down with all those people in there. What a different story altogether. As uh, you, you talk about that event, we've all seen pictures of it, at least most of us have. But what was it like for you to see that devastation with the naked eye? Well, it was really, it was really quite surprising to see. I mean, it was all in. It wasn't a little collapse. The whole thing, as you saw in the photographs later, was all in and on the ground. Uh, again, all because of the space frame design, apparently. But, uh, you know, and that sort of points out, you know, that was a snow load, water load. And uh, when you're talking about today being the coldest day in the month of January, in this warm spell we've had, and never really had a winter yet, uh, part of all this water conservation business has to do with global climate change. We're having bigger storm events than we ever had. And that affects our ability to capture and hold water. And in the West, it's causing enormous problems because they're dependent on snowmelt. And the snowmelt has come off the mountains earlier in the spring because it's warmer. And all that water passes through their river systems before they need it in the summer. So global climate change is having an enormous impact on our need to conserve and protect our water supplies. And I know the massive fires in Australia have been reportedly set by arsonists as well, but it also comes just a couple of months after they had the hottest temperature ever recorded in Australia. So that probably dried things out even more. And I think that that speaks to your point. Right, exactly. We're talking off air a little bit too about the clean water in Connecticut. And these days everybody uses bottled water. How does bottled water compare with tap water, especially tap water in Connecticut? Well, I can tell you that Rivers Alliance and all those concerned about water in Connecticut do not like bottled water um, for several reasons. Number one, there's pretty good evidence based on a number of tests that the quality of the water in some of the bottled water is not as good as what we get out of our tap. We have great water companies in Connecticut. So we want people to drink tap water. And the second thing which has become a worldwide crisis is plastics. Bottled water is all about plastics. And you know, and I know, and we all know now what's happened in the recycling business. 
what was a source of some small profit for local governments in Connecticut is now a source of additional expenditure because China's not taking our plastic and other countries overseas that were our dumps for our plastics are not taking it. So we have to really put a halt to plastic use to the extent we can. And the very first thing that everybody, all our listeners, everybody here in Connecticut needs to do, stop buying bottled water, buy a single bottle, a nice stainless steel, last forever bottle, fill it up, carry it with you. When you go flying, spill it out before the TSA people bust you, and then go to the nearest water fountain, fill it back up, and take that stainless steel bottle with you everywhere you go. And to airport's credit, because I fly a lot, I'm seeing more of those refillable stations inside Absolutely. the gate areas now. So you can empty it and then get through TSA and then refill it before you get on the plane. I right. Think Absolutely. Good. It just takes a little discipline. It's like the, the flap going on now over coffee cups and the fact that we're these plasticized cardboard cups don't get us anywhere because they have a plastic coating on them. And all that, you know, much of it anyway, ends up in our water courses and streams and is visual pollution, but also chemical and physical pollution. So for that reason, we need to get away from bottled water to the extent we can. It'll be needed sometimes, um, but for the most part, we need to get away from it. Dwight, you referenced this earlier. Let's uh, tackle this. You wrote an op-ed that ran on the Hartford Current a couple of weeks ago, headlined, President Trump has declared war on toilets. It became a big story a month or so ago. He did it again earlier this week in one of his rallies. Can you uh, just kind of sum up what your take was on that? Because it does pertain to water and the water supply. Right after Trump got elected, he called in a bunch of CEOs into the White House, sat them down and said, what kind of regulations would you like me to get rid of? That's what I'm all about, getting rid of regulation. And they had a long list, but you know what was not among them? the water-saving devices. Also not among them was wind power. Also not among that list was LEDs and energy-saving fixtures. So now, playing to his base, he has just, as we say in the law, sua sponte, on his own motion, uh, raised this issue of low-flow toilets by declaring, and it's really quite astonishing. The White House, if you go to whitehouse.gov, you can actually get the transcripts of all the things Trump says. And in this this comment he made uh, back in December, uh, it was that he has to flush his toilet 10 or 15 times to make it work, and we ought to get rid of low-flow devices. Do you think he may have been exaggerating on that? You don't I don't think, know, but you it don't think the White House toilets work that well? I... I <laughs> I will tell you, some people do complain that these low-flow devices haven't worked well, but, you know, it has to do with the technology. If we go back to 1980 with the highest-flow toilets that we used to have, the ones today use one-eighth of what they use. And so the early technology was not perfect, just like early technology for uh, photovoltaics and, uh, and, and solar cells was not perfect. And I was an early adopter of LED bulbs. They were not perfect. They didn't look the right color. They burned out too early. But now things have changed. And this Water Sense program by EPA, and your listeners can just go EPA Water Sense and read all about it, has saved 3.4 trillion gallons of water. And these things work. Um, in Connecticut, 
you know what's really astonishing is, yes, low-flow toilets are great. Low-flow shower heads, sink fixtures and the like are great. The president can say he's going to get rid of it, but, you know, that train left the station a long time ago. Consumers like them. The plumbers are use them, using them all. We're frankly not that worried that he's going to turn that ship around. But really in Connecticut, you know what it is? It, it's, it's lawn irrigation that we need to talk about. Lawn irrigation. That's where most of our Class A potable water is being wasted here in Connecticut. All right, what do you recommend? Well, the planners recommend two things. One is that we do so-called xeriscaping, X-E-R, xeriscaping, which is low water usage landscapes. Think about things that we can do when we design a landscape to minimize the use of water. But where we do use water, I mean, my situation's a good example. I built a house in 2000. I put in an irrigation, lawn irrigation system. I got a letter uh, a year and a half ago from the water company saying, look, Dwight, you're in trouble. You, you, got, you got a big leak because your bill's 225 bucks this, this summer. And I said, I don't have a big leak. I'm just watering my lawn. And that's what it was. The, a lot of water was going into watering the lawn. So I called the irrigation company. I said, we've got to figure this out. And they said, look, we got something brand new for you. This thing is terrific. And if everybody in Connecticut put it in at their houses, we'd save millions and millions of gallons of water. This controller that they put in, in my house, cost a few hundred bucks, but I've already made most of the money back in one season. Two seasons, I'll have all my money back. On, on it, lower water bills? On a lower water bill. Right. I'm used, I used a fraction. I used like $60 worth of water this summer instead of 225 How did that happen? This thing is like a miracle. It's so cool. It's Wi-Fi connected with a central station which has got at least as good a weather as you have on this station, all right? You got good weather here, good weather forecasting. I'm, but what they do is it tells the controller, it said, look, stupid, it rained yesterday. You don't need water today. Or have you ever driven by somebody's house when their sprinkler is on and it's raining out? You have, right? Driven by and seen a lawn sprinkler sprinkling away in the rain. I've seen it. Yeah. yeah, it won't allow that to happen. And the other thing it does is it says, um, look, tomorrow it's forecast to rain. So we're not going to water today. All done electronically through Wi-Fi. A few hundred bucks to change your controller. If everybody in Connecticut that had lawn irrigation just did that, would stop wasting this Class A potable water. So that's one suggestion. As good as the water quality is in Connecticut, are there some rivers in Connecticut that need some work? Well, all our rivers need our constant attention. We can't take our eye off that ball, if you will. That means we've got to, uh, it's particularly the tributaries that we're concerned about. The direct discharges, we're, we're uncombining, you know, we have these combined sewer and, and stormwater systems in Hartford that are being separated at great expense and so we're addressing that problem of the old urban infrastructure so those direct discharges into our main river systems are not as much of an issue as they used to be what is really an issue is the tributaries to them and what every individual does on their own property um, certainly agricultural runoff is an issue we pay attention to that uh, we've had a couple of instances recently where um, these big solar farms have 
uh, denuded the landscape and resulted in a tremendous burden of particulate uh, uh, surface uh, water to come off and into our streams. So we need to be very careful about what we do along those tributaries to those rivers. I want to talk wind power momentarily here, but you just talked about solar power. What's your take on a lot of people having solar power, about the big solar farms you see? There's a lot of them on the Mass Pipe when you get closer to Boston. <laughs> yeah. Are you in favor of those? Well, I'm, I'm, yes, I am. I'm an early adopter. I have a house in Vermont, and uh, I was one of the very first people to put solar on that house, and it cost me a fortune because it was early in the <laughs> technology. And I even had to create my own uh, public utility in order to legally put up the photovoltaics on my house. My house in Simsbury I just did three years ago, and it was a fraction of the cost and generates three times as much electricity. So I'm a big personal proponent of solar. I'm a proponent of wind power. There's a lot that we can do offshore. Um, but what concerns me and concerns Rivers Alliance is clear-cutting uh, virgin and native landscapes to create a very large ground-mounted solar farms. Um, that's the easiest, cheapest, best way for the solar developers to do it, and there's a role for that. We need some of that, but it needs to be in the right place and it needs to be carefully managed. And frankly, we didn't do a good job of managing a couple of them recently, and now the Commissioner of the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection has stepped up uh, the uh, oversight of that. Instead, um, uh, our view is that we ought to incentivize and encourage retrofitting of parking lots and rooftops. Those systems cost more because they're fragmented. Uh, they cost more because there's multiple owners. But they're free. The rooftops are free. The parking lots are free. And you get your car parked under cover if we do these in our parking lots. And what you commented on on the Mass Pike um, they're difficult to do because they're small systems. But we need to think about incentives to make those small systems first before we start clear-cutting our forest for solar farms. And hasn't the current administration taken away some of the incentives for solar? Well, it's been a mixed bag, but uh, really the, the question is going forward, will there be new incentives to push the solar development onto the rooftops and parking lots and those existing open spaces before uh, we start clear-cutting uh, forest or covering our prime agricultural land. The Commissioner of Agriculture, uh, former Commissioner of Agriculture, was opposed to the farmland conversions because he thought they never could be returned to production. I don't know whether that's the case or not, but we don't need to go there as long as we have rooftops and parking lots to fill in. And the president recently said, we'll have an economy based on wind. I never understood wind. You know, windmill, I, I know windmills very much. I've studied it better than anybody I know. It's very expensive. They're made in China and Germany mostly. Very few made here, almost none. But they're manufactured. Tremendous, if you're into this. Tremendous fumes. Gases are spewing into the atmosphere. You know we have a world, right? So the world is tiny compared to the universe. So a tremendous, tremendous amount of fumes and everything. Um, you want to break that down for us, Dwight? Uh, how do you spell bogus? Uh, where do I start? <laughs> what is he? What is he thinking? Um, he's just wrong. So probably thoughts he had while he was flushing the toilet. No, I times. think you know he's playing to his base, and you know you got to hand him that. He's a politician. Um, wind power. Uh, 
particularly offshore wind power, has a great role to play for us. Uh, the, the production of that power is increasingly less expensive. It was more expensive than we wanted it to be some years ago, but now the costs are coming down rapidly. Uh, the adverse impacts are slight, and the impacts that Trump talks about uh, are largely avoidable. He talks about bird kills and bat kills. The fact is that if you look at the causes of bird mortality, um, windows are number one. Uh, nearly a billion birds a year, a billion birds a year are killed flying into buildings with reflecting glass. Right after that, um, sorry for all our cat lovers, I like cats too, but the cats are number two. 500 million birds a year are killed by uh, feral cats, uh, cats that are on the loose and not within the protection of uh, homes. And then after that, high tension wires at 200 million, cars at 60 or 80 million, pesticides maybe 80, 90 million, all the way down. And the number of bat kills and bird kills from wind power is really quite slight and easily fixable. And the president says he's an expert on it, but he didn't tell you this. Um, Number one, we need to cite our wind power out of the way of bird migration patterns. We know how they migrate. Just don't put them in the way. It's as simple as that. Number two, when the birds are migrating, shut them down. We know when they migrate. We simply shut them down. Number three, which is part of the overall solution, which will minimize bird kills and bat kills from wind power, is that we... Um, increase the wind speed at which the wind power comes on. It's the lower wind speeds that uh, produce the most bird kills and bat kills because as the wind speeds pick up, the birds and bats aren't in the air. They stay down. So by simply increasing by a few miles an hour the speed at which wind power comes online, we can save them. So those three things, stay out of the migration paths, shut down when the birds migrate, increase uh, the wind speeds at which wind power come on will just uh, virtually eliminate these kills. And then there was this comment saying that uh, when the wind dies down, you can't watch TV. Uh, well. <laughs> no power. Well. That's not that, quite how it works, is it's it? All, it's <laughs> all of these, re remember, this is a matter of orchestrating what we have. Um, you, you know, the solar solars comes when the sun is out. My two solar systems are grid-tied. They, they pass electricity into the system. It gets passed around. And that, you really touched on something that's very, very important here, and that's the, the grid. It, we need a better grid than what we have in this country to send the power to where it's needed when we're generating it, whether it's solar or wind or nuclear uh, or even our fossil-fueled plants when they have to come online is to move that power along. And we've had opportunities in Maine that have not served us down in southern New England because we can't get the power here. So working on the grid should be a number one concern in infrastructure for green power. Dwight, I've seen some of these wind farms out west. I've seen them all over the country. But the one close to us that 
does get my attention is the Block Island Wind Farm. They just built that about five or ten or so years ago, right off Mohegan Bluffs. Uh, there's like five towers there. And from what I hear, it essentially supplies the power for all of Block Island and some of that gets sent on the grid back to the mainland as well. What are your thoughts about these wind farms? Now they're talking about making one south of Long Island as well. Right. But uh, do, do they accomplish their intended goal? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, I'm, of course, I'm familiar with the one at Block because I have a mooring in the Great Salt Pond for my sailboat when I get a chance to get out there. Dwight's a Navy guy. And, uh, and uh, so I, I followed it as it developed. It's a small operation relative to others. Um, the uh, people who fish were concerned about their ability to fish around the towers, but you know we know those towers have brought uh, fish populations in and provided them a habitat that they didn't have before, so that's been kind of a plus. Um, it's a good example of how it can be done. We need much, much bigger systems than that. And there are ones proposed, and Connecticut is really doing a pretty good job, I think, of uh, providing a base in New London at the State Pier uh, to support that activity. Uh, so the future is hopeful for, for green energy here in Connecticut. Some people say that the motor sound is messing up the radar of whales and fish and dolphins and so forth. Do you buy into that? I don't I haven't followed it closely enough, but I do follow a lot of the environmental news, and I've haven't heard much about that. It's sort of low-frequency vibration. Uh, the bigger problem for our large mammals, um, well, historically, uh, I'm sorry to say, it's been partly the Navy's uh, doing with their high-powered sonar has disturbed whales, but we've pretty much addressed that issue and resolved it in ways that they can test their sonar systems with the least impact on whales. Uh, but really, we ought to be mostly concerned about plastics in the ocean in terms of those large mammals. That's that's where we're killing them. Going back to the mostly very clean water supply here in Connecticut through rivers and lakes and reservoirs and so forth, we talked about this issue of the, the low flow and ways people can conserve water. And there may be people that go, well, why do I have to conserve water? We've got plenty of water in Connecticut. But I can give you a personal story that when I first moved to Connecticut in 1965, the Northeast was in a massive drought situation. The one thing I remember about that, you go to a restaurant, they were not allowed to serve you water like most restaurants do automatically these days unless you asked for it. And I think the point is that, yeah, we've got lots of water right now. We had a pretty wet year in 2019, but don't you have to kind of make plans in case you do return to a drought year or a drought pattern? Well, what was it, Ben Franklin, a penny saved is a penny earned? It's his birthday today. Uh, is it really? Well, yeah. happy birthday, Ben. Um, he's, he's listening. Uh, I like Ben's hairline, actually. <laughs> it's a lot like mine. He's um, out there looking at his sundial right I now. know. <laughs> and um, so, you know, a gallon saved is a gallon saved and uh, for future generations and for our use uh, during hard times. Look, if, if, a couple of things. You don't have to be an environmentalist to want to save water. You don't, care about the, you, you don't care much about the environment, fine. But you ought to care about your pocketbook. Um, and the two things that people can do is take, around, take a look around their house about leaks. The drip, drip, drip. 10% of homes leak more than 90 gallons a day. A leaky faucet at one drip a second is 3,000 gallons a year. Um, water leaks, I, 
are a trillion gallons a year, enough water for 11 million homes nationwide. Um, you can save a lot of money by saving water. I did a little, if our, if our listeners will go to, and during the break you said you took a look at the WaterSense, I'm EPA, right now. Yeah. EPA WaterSense website. It's a wonderful website. You can learn a lot there. But this is about saving money. I'm going to tell your listeners how to save some big bucks and accidentally do a good thing for the environment. All right? So you just have to be a cheap, frugal New Englander to pay attention here. So go to the WaterSense program, EPA WaterSense, and it'll show, tell you all about it. One of the things you can do in there, it's a lot of fun, is plug in what you have at home. So I plugged in a family of four uh, with um, a uh, electric hot water heater. And you say, well, wait a second. Is this about conserving water? No, this is more than conserving water. It's saving money. When you have a high-flow shower head or a high-flow uh, faucet or a leaking hot water tap, you're heating that water, and you're wasting that electricity. So... If you replace your current fixtures in an older home with water sense fixtures today, that home in Connecticut would save 32,000 gallons of water a year. You know how much that is? That's enough for 780 loads of laundry a year. You're not doing that much laundry. Um, oh, I'm a, I'm a dirty guy. Well, I can see the way you're dressed. You're not doing that much laundry. So that's the beauty of radio. You're coming in here in your lounge pajamas, I guess it is. Or I've something. been outed. So, so and electricity, 580 kilowatt hours. Now, I don't know what your people are paying around here in this part of the state. I don't pay any electricity where I live because I've got solar. I don't have an electric bill. It's so wonderful to get a bill that says you don't owe us a nickel. But everybody else, what are we paying, 14, 15 cents a kilowatt hour or something? 580 kilowatt hours a year. That's enough to run a refrigerator for six months just by going to water sense fixtures because you're not heating that hot water that's going down the drain. 870 pounds of greenhouse gas emissions saved and at least several hundred dollars saved in your wallet, enough for uh, a nice night at the casino. Google it, but you can also go right to the website, epa.gov slash watersense. Dwight Merriam, great stuff this morning. I appreciate you coming in. Dwight, the president of the Rivers Alliance of Connecticut. You looking for members of that, and how do people get involved in the organization? Just just Google Rivers Alliance of Connecticut. Take you right to the website. Um, we welcome members. Uh, doesn't really cost anything to join. Sign up to get but we urge your contributions to our work, of course. Uh, but as importantly, we urge you to take a look at what we're doing, come to our meetings. Uh, we have various events throughout the year. And uh, lend your support to this because it's not only for us. It's not only for you and me, but it's for our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren to come. We want them to look back and say, you know, those folks back there in 2020... They, they really, they loved us. They thought about us. They gave up a little bit so we would have more today. Dwight, thanks for coming out this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate the offer to be here.